Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and co-host Dr. Erica Reamer. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 375th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, brought to you today by ICD University. And joining me this morning as my co-host is a very, very popular Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer is the founder and the president of Erica Reamer, MD Incorporated, and good morning, Erica. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everybody. This morning, our lead story is about the dangers of cloned documentation. Cutting and pasting functions in the EMR and the EHR can really damage the integrity of the medical record. It is a pet peeve of mine. I know. I hear you. And reporting our lead story this morning is going to be Terry Fletcher. And speaking of coding, Lori Johnson returns with her coding report. Indeed. And this morning, Tammy Combs from AHEMA has a Talk to Enthusiast CDI report. And we'll be hearing from Stanley Knockson. There's a plethora of regulatory news coming out of Washington that Stanley's been monitoring us. Nice job, Stanley. We have much news to report, and we begin this morning with Tim Powell, who's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by ICD University, inviting you to sign up for a free three-day trial to the ICD-10 Monitor educational webcast series. Click on the tab above or visit the ICD-10 Monitor bookstore. Here now is Tim Powell. Thanks, Chuck. And I want to talk today about Medicare reimbursement for graduate medical education programs. Medicare reimbursement for payments to hospitals for graduate medical education are based on calculations so complicated it boggles the mind. The complication of direct graduate medical education payments starts with an allowable cost per resident, or APRA, that was determined in the 1990s, almost 30 years ago. The APRA is then multiplied by the number of residents working in the hospital. For each resident, teaching hospitals must submit data including the resident's name, their social security number, the date of medical school graduation, the name of the medical school, for foreign medical graduates, the date they passed their ECFMG exams, the number of years and other residencies they have completed, and finally, the name and type of their first U.S.-based residency program. In addition, the count of residents has limits put in place in 1996, over 20 years ago. In addition to direct GME payments, Teaching hospitals also get a payment for indirect cost of teaching residents or indirect medical education. Again, there are caps in counting the number of residents going back to 1996 in the computation. The IME computation is based on the ratio of residents to hospital available bed days. The idea is that the mere presence of residents makes the overall running of the hospital less efficient. This number is way harder to determine than the number of licensed or available beds. It's the weighted average of available beds over the period of time reported. As beds are added or removed from service on a daily basis, getting the correct number is very difficult. Now that your head is spinning, the IME reimbursement formula includes taking ratios of the last three periods in a rolling average count of residents with different counting rules than is used for the direct GME reimbursement formula. For a final bit of fun, the calculation takes the allowable ratio of residents to available beds and runs it through an equation that includes raising amounts to the 0.405 power. Does anyone remember square roots? The equations are so complex that only reimbursement people filling out cost reports understand them, and most of them don't really understand it. With a huge number of teaching hospitals limited in reimbursement based on 30-year-old allocations, is there any doubt that it's unfair? GME payments are often so large that teaching hospitals make more from Medicare GME payments 
than the Medicare prospective payment system that, that would be paid if the hospital did not have GME at all. Many hospitals without GME programs think GME payments are grossly unfair and skew the playing field. I can't see it happening anytime soon, but at some point, Congress must look at the whole system of paying for graduate medical education and make dramatic changes. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tim, very much. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and an ICD-10 Monitor National Correspondent. It's Tuesday. It's July 2nd, 2019. And on this day in history, the U.S. issues the Susan B. Anthony Silver Dollar. It's the first U.S. coin to honor a woman, and the rest, of course, is history. Today, you're listening to the 375th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. The social determinants of health have a fiscal impact on healthcare organizations. New regulations and legislative mandates call for appropriate documentation and coding to capture reimbursement. That's why you and your team should attend an upcoming webcast on the social determinants of health. This exclusive ICD-10 Monitor webcast will help your organization protect revenue while staying compliant. Listen and learn as nationally recognized expert on social determinants of health, Ellen Fink-Samnick, helps you stay current on coding, reimbursement, and regulatory guidelines. The webcast is Thursday, July 18th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Register now and save $30 when you enter the coupon code TUESDAY. Thanks, Clark. And a reminder that you and your team can benefit from exclusive ICD-10 monitor educational webcasts from the industry's most knowledgeable experts while earning continuing education units. And the good news, sign up now for a free three-day trial. And here now with the Talk 10 Tuesday Coding Report is Lori Johnson. Good morning, Lori. Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, Erica. And hello to our listeners. Yes, CMS did release the final fiscal year 20 ICD-10 CM codes on June 21st. The release had a total of 72,184 diagnosis codes that will be applicable for MSDRG version 37. The changes included 273 new codes, 21 deleted codes, and 30 description changes. The final diagnosis update is exactly what was predicted in proposed rule. The fiscal 20 codes will be effective October 1st, 2019 through September 30th, 2020. The good news is that chapters 1, 2, 4, 5, 6, 7, 10, 11, 13, 15, and 16 do not have any new codes for this year. There are relatively few codes for chapter 3, diseases of the blood and blood-forming organs, and there were five, and there were just a one update for vertigo and chapter eight. Chapter nine has 30 new codes that cover various types of atrial fibrillation and phlebitis and thrombophlebitis. That those that change accommodates new veins and also includes laterality. There are some words of caution about chapter 12, the diseases of skin and subcutaneous tissue. That chapter has 25 new codes, and the codes are around a new classification for pressure ulcers. That new classification is pressure-induced deep tissue damage, and it's identified by character 6 in the L89 category for pressure ulcers. 
I would encourage you to have a discussion with your wound care nurse to make them aware that you would be looking for that type of staging for your pressure ulcers. The the verdict is out with regards to what final role we'll have with regards to including these 25 codes as well as stages one and two in the hospital associated conditions, the, the HAC um, codes. And then chapter 14 has three new codes, so pretty minor. Um, two of those codes are actually for unspecified breast lump that has um, overlapping quadrants. Chapter 17 covers um, the congenital malformations, deformations, and chromosomal abnormalities. There's 31 new codes in this chapter, and they cover topics such as congenital foot deformities. They've expanded Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, and they have some other congenital malformations and syndromes uh, that are associated with short stature. Chapter 18 has three new codes. The new codes include R11.15 with regards to cyclical vomiting syndrome unrelated to migraine, R82.81 for pyuria, and R82.89, which are other abnormal findings of cytology and histology exam of urine. Chapter 19 has 87 new codes. These codes are pretty much restricted to three topics, um, orbital fractures, poisoning and adverse effect of multiple medicaments, and heat stroke. Chapter 30, which is the external cause chapter, has 20 new codes that focus on the legal intervention of specific objects. Chapter 21, um, the factors influencing health status, has 13 new codes that are around various topics. There's not one that's predominant. Emily has shown on the screen the URL. If you're looking to where can I actually look at all the new codes, if you look at that URL, it will bring you up to the um, inpatient perspective payment area, and you can look in the tables is what you want to look at and look for table 6A and 6B. 6A will have the diagnosis, 6B will have the procedures. It's interesting when you look at that information that for the new codes, 75 of them have a CC status, five of them have an MCC status, and the rest of them, which are 193, are not CC or an MCC. So more changes, I'm sure, as we um, move to prospective payment. And um, I think that's it. Back to you, Erica. Thanks, Lori. I have to say it's so much fun to see the activity at the Coordination and Maintenance Committee meetings come to fruition. That was Lori Johnson. Uh, Lori is a senior healthcare consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And Lori, thank you very, very much for your reporting. Now's the time for the RegWatch segment here on Talk 10 Tuesday, featuring nationally recognized healthcare technology consultant Stanley Knoxon. So, Stanley, good morning. A lot of news coming out of Washington. What should we know about? Absolutely, Chuck. Good morning to everyone, and let's get to it. On the 24th of last month, 
President Trump signed an executive order titled Improving Price and Quality Transparency in American Healthcare to Put Patients First. The order directs federal agencies to issue regulations in an attempt to improve transparency relating to healthcare prices and quality. Now, this order has six main directives, so we'll be seeing lots of stuff coming out. It directs the Secretary of Health and Human Services to issue regulations within 60 days to require hospitals to publicly post standard charge information, including information based on negotiated rates, in an easy-to-understand format. It directs the secretaries of HHS, Treasury, and Labor to issue an advance notice of proposed rulemaking, seeking comments on proposals to require providers and insurers to provide patient access to information about expected out-of-pocket costs prior to receiving health care services, requires the HHS secretary with the attorney general and the FTC to issue a report within 180 days on the ways the federal government and the private sector impede health care price and quality transparency, and also providing solutions for promoting competition and eliminating identified barriers. It directs the HHS secretary in consultation with other federal departments and agencies within 180 days to increase access to de-identified claims data from federal health care programs and health plans for the development of tools that inform patients about purchasing care. Requires the Treasury Secretary with 120 days to propose regulations expanding health savings accounts and high deductible health plans and within 180 days to propose regulations to treat expenses related to certain types of arrangements as eligible medical expenses, and to issue guidance to increase the amount of flexible spending arrangements that an individual can carry over without penalty at the end of the year, and it directs the HHS secretary to submit a report to the president on administrative steps that can be taken to address surprise medical bills. These are all in line with the administration's strategy for interoperability, greater transparency, and putting patients first. Now, here's a real opportunity for our listeners. On the 6th of June, CMS issued a request for information seeking new ideas from the public on how to continue the progress of the Patients Over Paperwork Initiative. Um, As of January of this year, CMS estimated that through regulatory reform alone, the healthcare system will save an estimated 40 million hours and $5.7 billion through 21 through the uh, proposed and final rules uh, on uh, putting patients uh, first. Now, this RFI um, asks uh, patients, their families, the medical community, and other healthcare stakeholders to recommend further changes to rules, policies, and procedures that shift more of clinicians' time and our healthcare system's resources from needless paperwork to high-quality care that improves patient health. Uh, CMS is is expensive especially seeking innovative ideas that broaden perspectives on potential solutions to relieve burden and ways to improve reporting and documentation, coding and documentation requirements for Medicare and Medicaid payments, prior authorization procedures, policies and requirements for rural providers, clinicians, and beneficiaries, policies and requirements for duly enrolled Medicare and Medicaid beneficiaries, beneficiary enrollment and eligibility determination, and CMS processes for issuing regulations and policies. Now, comments have to be submitted by August 12, 2019, and this is clearly an opportunity to provide ideas directly to CMS, and I urge you to take advantage of that. Uh, Dr. Reamer, I will turn it back to you. Thank you, Stanley. That was Healthcare IT Authority, Stanley Nockamson. Stanley is the founder of Nockamson Advisors, LLC. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And again, Stanley, thank you very much for the RegWatch report. 
Here now with a Talk 10 Tuesday CDI report is Tammy Combs reporting from Ahima. Good morning, Tammy. Welcome to the broadcast. Good morning, Chuck. Thank you very much. And hello, everyone. Ahima is continually monitoring the clinical documentation improvement integrity landscape to um, assess for any current issues that may be impacting the CDI industry. When an issue is identified, a review of the resources is performed to then determine if a product needs to be updated or if new resources should be developed. We want to ensure that AHIMA has the resources available to support the needs of the industry. So some of the current issues on the radar right now include a compliant query process, clinical validation, problem lists, the MCC, CC capture rate, and just overall CDI best practices. The AHIMA CDI Practice Council is a group of CDI expert volunteers, and this group puts in long hours to help assist AHIMA in identifying these issues, and they assist with the development of industry resources. Now, some of the recent publications that the CDI Practice Council, as well as other industry experts, have completed include updates to the following practice briefs, guidelines to achieving a compliant query practice, clinical validation, the next level of CDI, definition, history, and the use of the problem list, using CCMCC capture rates as key performance indicators, and best practices in the art and science of clinical documentation improvement. Now, um, all of these practice briefs have been updated in 2019. So the CDI Practice Council has done a lot of work um, to update these publications. Now, another AHIMA resource for the CDI industry is the Diving into Documentation webinar series that was started this year. These are monthly webinars that discuss many of the current CDI issues. Now, some of the issues that have been presented this year include promoting interoperability, the query practice brief, outpatient query toolkit, the clinical validation best practice guidance, and highlights from the best practices in the arts and science of CDI practice briefs. And then coming up this month is going to be a discussion on the essentials of a CDI quality audit. Now, the last resource I'll mention is the CDI Summit. Now, this is the AHIMA premier CDI event, and it's just around the corner on July 14th and 15th. There will be keynote presentations that discuss the query practice brief update. There's going to be a keynote focused on a physician's perspective of accurate documentation and coding. Uh, there will be a panel discussion regarding a complex clinical scenario, and then um, there will also be a keynote connecting the medical field with politics and advocacy. There's also going to be several educational tracks um, available as well. So I hope you take advantage of the coming to the CDI Summit. There are many other valuable resources found on the AHIMA website at ahima.org. I hope you find time to check some of them out. So I'd like to thank you all, and um, back to you, Erica. Thanks, Tammy. I strongly recommend checking out AHIMA's resources. I think that they are invaluable. That was Tammy Combs. Tammy is the Director of CDI and Nurse Planner for AHIMA. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And thank you very much, Tammy, for being on the broadcast this morning.
As we mentioned at the top of this broadcast, our lead story this morning is about the cloning of medical records. Now, the current use of copy and paste functions in the EMR and the EHR is a growing area of focus for government auditors. In fact, the OIG has weighed in on this topic. And weighing in this morning with our lead story is Terry Fletcher. Good morning, Terry. Thank you, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. The practice of cloned or copy-paste documentation is a significant issue in the use of electronic health records. A recent study in the Journal of American Medical Association found that hundreds of progress notes examined by researchers that just 18% were entered newly by clinicians, meaning that the rest were either cut and pasted by an administrative staff member or auto-populated into the record by the EMR. As an auditor myself, I find that number may even be higher. CMS defines clone documentation as multiple entries in the patient's health record that are exactly alike or similar to other entries in the same patient's health record or another patient's health record. You may have also heard other terms used for duplicative documentation that include cloning, copy and paste, copy forward, macros, and saved saved notes as a template. There are several issues with clone noting that can be red flagged for potential audits in your clinics and offices as well. First, inappropriate use of clone notes can damage the trustworthiness and integrity of the patient record. There are also reimbursement implications of clone documentation that lacks patient-specific information necessary to support medical necessity requirements for services rendered to an individual patient, as well as safety concerns. The OIG issued a statement in 2013, and again recently, concerned with copy and paste practices, saying such features can produce information suggesting that practitioner performed a more comprehensive service than was actually rendered. AHIMA has warned in the past the healthcare industry of the risk associated with copy and paste practices or clone noting, stating the use of copy and paste functionality in EHRs can result in redundant, erroneous, and or incomprehensible medical record documentation with far-reaching implications for the quality and safety of patient care as well as the legal integrity of the record. Medicare, uh, Matt Carrier Palmetto issued a policy warning, and I'll paraphrase, clone documentation does not meet the medical necessity requirement for coverage of services. Systems may generate extensive documentation based on a single click of a checked box, which if not appropriately edited by the provider, may be inaccurate. inaccurate. Such features produce information suggesting that practitioner performed more comprehensive services than were actually rendered. And this is what I see most often in the audits that I perform. So in saying this, you may ask, how are we to use our EMR compliantly and protect health record information from scrutiny? First, provide a mechanism to make copy and paste material easily identifiable, a different font, a highlighted pull-through, a different color type. Ensure adequate staff training and education regarding the appropriate and safe use of copy and paste. There is a time for it, but it should not be the norm or as a filler to boost the volume of documentation to upcode. Develop a process for monitoring compliance with governmental regulatory industry standards and organizational policies procedures related to clinical documentation and ensure that copy and paste practices are regularly monitored, measured, and assessed. You need to be internally policing this with quarterly audits or sooner depending on your clinic or practice or facility size. If you find a problem area, that's when I would call in an external auditor like myself to assess the situation before it gets into the hands of a payer or Medicare. Develop organizational copy-paste standards with strong technical and administrative controls to minimize the risk associated with functionality and including alternatives to cut and paste or auto-populating for increased efficiency of workflows for documentation capture. Also, set practitioner expectations to document based on what is relevant to a particular encounter. And finally, ensure your EHR vendor 
supports compliant clinical documentation and related billing and coding practices, such as provenance audits, which are different from regular audits that determine if a code supports a build code or if a record supports a build code. A prominence audit is a, is a record that describes entities and processes involved in producing, updating, delivering, or otherwise influencing resources. Prominence audits provide a critical foundation for assessing authenticity, trustability, and traceability. So who authored and why, who updated and why, where these, when were these changes made and why, and what influenced these changes when data is moved, et cetera, and it can track where the data came from. You want to be able to evaluate where and how the information in an EHR is generated. The ability to discern whether a character was typed fresh, manually entered for that encounter's date of service, or pulled in from another source, such as a medication list, or pasted from a previous note or elsewhere in the patient medical record. And is it relevant to today's encounter or just filler? And is it error-free if it's being pulled forward? That's a big one. Electronic health record documentation isn't going anywhere. Remember, CMS offered incentives back in the day to physician practices and facilities to transition from paper charts to an EMR, an EHR. So with the continued implementation of EHRs, also comes the risk of misuse of copy and paste practices. And so the need for thoroughly, thoroughly enforced copy and paste policies should be implemented. Users of the EMR EHR should be provided with guidance, training, and industry updates when possible. So that is important. So this important tool does not lead to unintended consequences. You can read more about this in my article today in ICD10Monitor.com. Dr. Reamer, back to you. Great advice, Terry. Thanks. I actually once saw a consultant uh, say they copied and pasted the entire admitting H&P, including the third entry in the plan that said, consult me. That is not only non-compliant, that's actually called fraud. Anyway, that was nationally recognized professional physician, coder, and auditor, Terry Fletcher. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. Thank you very much, Terry. And you can read Terry's very important reporting on this subject in today's IC Detent Monitor News. Now's the time for a very popular segment here at Talk to Enthusi, and that's called Talk Back, and it features our own Dr. Erica Reamer once again. Erica. Yeah, Chuck, I'm going to continue my series on what you should know from the sessions I attended in Actus. Um, there was just so much excellent material. So Sam Antonios did a fantastic presentation on how CDI impacts quality. He explained that some programs pay for performance and some simply pay for reporting, even if your results are abysmal. And he focused on the hospital-based programs. And the first thing I learned, and I'm kind of embarrassed to uh, confess that this was a knowledge deficit of mine prior to this session, was that with many Medicare programs, we don't technically lose money. The way they work is that a certain amount of money is withheld initially. And you have the potential to recoup some or all of the money if you meet the requisites of the program. He taught us that Medicare uses the term predicted instead of observed, and then he then used a very understandable, uh, understandable cupcake model to explain risk adjustment. I attended a talk called Using Data to Drive Program Success, which was presented by folks from the Allegheny Health Network. They were able to get great physician buy-in with 65 physician champions across seven facilities and nine institutes. Their process included dedicated speci- dedicating specialists by service line, providing posters and photocards of the CDSs to increase visibility, rounding with providers, which was the topic of my talk the second day, um, attending de- departmental staff meetings and establishing a hotline so providers could get assistance at their convenience. Their metric to determine need was one CDS FTE for every 1,800 discharges per year. 
they talked about their report cards and how they reported to leadership quarterly with quarterly CDIS reviews as well. They essentially select five action items until they hit their benchmark consistently, and then those items are placed on a watch list and revisited as needed. In the year following implementation, they reaped an increase in case mix index of 3.45% and a decrease in reported complications by 50%. SOI similarly increased and risk-adjusted mortality was favorably influenced as well. Their methods were systematic and interesting. My only concern with this presentation was I actually took issue with some of the cases they used as examples, but I had discussed it with the speakers after the talk. Um, my friend Trayla Charité did a terrific talk on CDI for medical subspecialties. His general tips included use the most specific ICD-10-CM friendly language possible, ensure diagnosis physical exam congruity, and linkage is imperative with significant SOI implications. He convinced me that keeping a diagnosis on the assessment and plan list with the qualifier resolved can prevent downgrade or being overlooked. It is also important for the attending service to adopt more specific terminology as laid out by the specialist. Documentation of an instant stenosis is considered a complication. Trey's recommendation was to reserve this terminology of a device failure for the occurrence up to a year post-placement, and after that, it should be linked to the progression of the atherosclerotic disease. He had other recommendations like sodium um, uh, hyponatremia should be reserved for sodium less than 130 and hypernatremia for sodium greater than 150. Um, we also, he also talked about uh, AIDS. And at this time, once B20, always B20, which is AIDS. But it won't surprise me if in the future they actually change that to an AIDS-defining illness who gets treatment and they end up with persistently undetectable viral load might at some point in the future, not now, but some point in the future, might be downgraded to Z21. Who knows? Anyway, Trey's and my final recommendations were about how to get this message to them and encourage participation. Get on their monthly staff meeting agenda, round with them, show them data, help the and help the EHR and their minions help them. Chuck, that's all we have time for, so back to you. Thanks, Erica, very much. And that is going to be a wrap for our 375th edition of Talk to Tuesday. And Eric and I want to thank our panelists today, Tammy Combs, Terry Fletcher, Laurie Johnson, Tim Powell, Stanley Nockerson, and, of course, our co-host, Dr. Erica Reamer. And remember, no matter where you are, you can always listen to Talk to Tuesday podcast anytime, anywhere, on any device. It's absolutely free. You can listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And until next Tuesday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for Talk to Tuesday and ICD-10 Monitor. Thank you again for being with us, and have a very safe and compliant 4th of July. Talk to Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.